Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, it is good to be back at Southeastern Day. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 12 and find verse 1. While you're turning in your Bibles to Luke 12 and verse 1, I do want to say again, it is a joy to be back with the Aikens. Um, I also want to say that I need your help. For the person who tweeted the picture of me from the 1990s uh, directory here at Southeastern, if you can find who that person is, and if you can find that picture, let me know. I will pay you whatever you ask. Uh, and if you saw the picture, you'll know why I'm saying that. The only thing that gives me much more comfort than that is that, uh, that Dr. Aiken's sense of fashion is not the best either. And uh, we have known Dr. Aiken forever. My wife has known him forever. And she has been mortified at his selection of outfits through the years. In fact, many of you do not know that at one point in Dr. Aiken's life, he thought wearing a corduroy suit was cool. And he had several of them. I think one was blue. Uh, one may have been red or something like that. And uh, burnt orange. Yeah. So it makes it even worse. And, uh, and my wife was so mortified by that that one day she was watching the four boys uh, when they were little uh, and taking care of them. She went into Dr. Aiken's closet. She got his suits, those two corduroy suits, out of his closet, put them in the trunk of her car, took them home, and threw them in the trash. So you can thank her because otherwise he'd probably be wearing those today. <laughs> so it is, good. it is good to be back with you. You have your Bibles with you. Luke chapter 12, we're going to begin in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 12. And you want to keep your Bibles open as we study this passage together today. Luke writes, In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were trampling one another he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. And the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers, the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. 
For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you shall say. It was 1993. Recently graduating here from Southeastern Seminary, I began pastoring my first church. My wife and I had experienced three months of a tremendous welcoming of this church to us. And I enjoyed preaching the gospel to them and loving them and pastoring them. One afternoon, I received a telephone call. The telephone call was from one of the most prominent men in the church, a a leader in the church, one who was a, a strong giver in the church. It was a small church, and this man was responsible for much of what was given. He began to tell me one thing after another of what I was doing wrong in ministry, how I had missed opportunities that I should have taken advantage of and how I didn't preach what I should have preached. And he began to critique my ministry. And after a while, the conversation from his end of the phone became more heated. And he said some things to me on the telephone that were not becoming of a Christian. And so when I challenged him as to what he said, he hung up the phone. I never had that happen to me before, somebody hang up the phone. And so I looked at my wife and I said, this man obviously is not happy. And He has a lot of things that are upon his heart. Let's go to his house and and visit with him. And so we got in our car and we drove to his house and we walked into his home after uh, he welcomed us in and we sat and we began to discuss the conversation on the telephone and and the words that he used and began to challenge him about some of the things he said as a Christian. The man sprung to his feet, walked over to the front door with one of the most evil and vilest sounds I ever heard come from a person's mouth, threw open the door and said, get out of my house. His wife began to cry. She began to sob. She said, you can't do that. He said to her, you be quiet. When they leave, I'll deal with you. My wife looked at me and I looked at her and I didn't quite know what to do. I I have never been thrown out of somebody's house before. In fact, I look back over my years in seminary, and I never was told by Dr. Aiken in systematic theology how I should respond to a situation (laughs) like that. I had had three three thoughts at that moment. Number one, uh, honey, it's over. We need to start looking for a a new ministry. Uh, But I had another thought, and again, it was nobody ever taught me about this. And the third thought that I had was, this is serious. Ministry is serious is serious. The honeymoon had come to an end. Three months into my ministry and the honeymoon was over. And and I began to contemplate as we left that house that day what ministry was going to be like. Ministry is tough work. It's a difficult assignment. And if you do not like the sight of blood, then the ministry is not for you. You see, Jesus was invited to the home of a Pharisee. And when he entered the home of that Pharisee and he began to eat, that Pharisee criticized him, saying at the end of chapter 11 and verse 38, you did not wash first before you ate. And so Jesus begins to reveal the hypocrisy of that statement and the hypocrisy of false religion. And beginning in verse 39 through the end of the chapter, Jesus calls out the Pharisees. He unveils the hypocrisy of false religion. And it becomes so intense that at the end, in verse 53 of chapter 11, Luke writes that the Pharisees began to press him hard. And they began to provoke him. And they began to look for ways to catch him in something that he might say. They they set the trap. It's It's a term used of a hunter. They were lying in wait. And suddenly the ministry of Jesus and the experience of the disciples and 
the gospel began to be raised to a different level. Things were now becoming more intense and ministry was becoming serious for the disciples. So as they leave that gathering, Luke tells us in our text this morning that a large multitude gathers together. In fact, thousands of people. Some estimate the crowd could have been 30,000 people or more. And they gather together so that they're trampling one another. And in the midst of that throng of people, Jesus looks at his disciples. Luke writes that in verse 1 and says that he looks at his disciples and he begins to teach them. And what does he say? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of hypocrisy. Beware of false religion. Beware of those who say one thing with their mouth but believe another thing in their heart. In other words, Jesus tells his disciples in the midst of this crowd that ministry is serious business. Now there's nothing that we read in the blank places between verse 3 and verse 4. But there is much that you can read into that by what Jesus says next in verse 4. Because in verse 4, Jesus begins to talk to his disciples in a very intimate way. He refers to them in verse 4 as friends. Later in verse 32, he will call them little flock. And so he begins to address his disciples. And primarily, he begins to to address his disciples with the issue of fear. In fact, 10 times in this text, no less than 10 times, Jesus will use the word fear or he'll use the word anxiety. Five times in this text, he will tell them, do not be afraid or do not be anxious. And it runs really throughout chapter 12. And so Jesus senses between verse 3 and verse 4 that the disciples are now realizing how serious this is. And the issue of fear and anxiety begins to creep up in their lives. It's almost like being thrown out of the house. Now the stakes are higher. They're raised to a different level. And he begins to teach them about what it truly means to follow him. How serious a commitment it takes. Now there are two specific subjects that he addresses all the way through chapter 12. And that is, first of all, that if you're going to follow me, you have to be willing to lay down your life. You have to be willing to sacrifice your life for me. And secondly, if you're going to follow me, then you have to be willing to open up your wallet. You have to be willing to give everything away. You have to be willing to hold nothing for yourself, but be willing to forsake everything in following me. Now, those are two things that if you can turn over to the Lord as a Christian, God can use you in a tremendous way. And those are two of the biggest fears that most of us have and the people in our churches have when it comes to following Christ. I call that first one the fear of missions and the second one the fear of money. The first one says you have to be willing to to give up your life. The second one says you have to be willing to give up your stuff. Jesus expounds that to his disciples in chapter 12. Now, we don't have time to look at both of those, so I want to take the first one. And in verses 1 through 13, or verse 12, I want to highlight what he says to them about giving up their lives. In fact, he's going to make three statements to them about giving up their lives. And in each statement, it is going to bring to us this morning a question that we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to give up our lives? Statement number one is found in verses four and five. Do not fear those who can kill the body 
Instead, you fear God. Statement number two is found in verse six. Are not five sparrows sold for just a few pennies? And you are of much more value than those sparrows. And statement number three is found in verses eight through 12, where Jesus says, do not worry about what you will say in the hour of your greatest trial, for in that hour, the spirit of God will give you the words to speak. Now, each of those statements brings to us this morning a question, and I want to ask you those questions today as we walk through this text. If you are truly going to understand how serious ministry is, and if you're truly going to understand how high the stakes are in what Jesus requires of those who are not hypocritical but who are true disciples, then you have to answer these three questions. You have to. It is imperative. And Jesus did not want the disciples to miss it. And so in the middle of a throng of people, he looks at his disciples and he teaches them a lesson about discipleship. Question number one, do you fear God more than anyone or anything? Do you fear God more than anyone or anything? Look at verse four. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body. Obviously, the disciples understood the hatred and the animosity, where we're beginning to understand the hatred and animosity of the Pharisees against Jesus. And so they ask in their minds and hearts, what does this mean for us? What, what, what does this mean now for us, those of us who have followed you and who identify with you? And Jesus says, do not fear them. I warn you who you shall fear, verse 5, fear him who has the authority to cast into hell. Fear God. The question is a question of loyalty. The question of loyalty asks us this question. Who do we really fear in our ministries? I was pastoring a church a number of years ago in this state. I was in my office. I was invited to perform the wedding of a girl in our church. She came to see me. She told me her life story about how she wanted to be married to this man. She told me that she was still married to her husband, but the divorce would be finalized in just a month. And so she wanted me to agree to do the wedding of this new man that she met in just a few more months after the divorce was finalized. And as I began to hear her story, it became apparent to me that this was not something of which I wanted to be a part. And in fact, I told her that God's will for her life was to go and to be reconciled to her husband. She walked up, got up out of my office, walked out of my office, she began to cry. What I did not tell you was that she was the daughter of the finance chairman in my church. I got on the phone, I called my wife, I said, pack. That was my first, that was my first thought, pack. Hung up the phone and I thought, you did it now. Received a telephone call about 30 minutes later from her father. Her father said to me, Pastor, I realize you met with my daughter today. I realized you turned down her wedding. And I also realized that you told her to go be reconciled to her husband. I said, yes, sir, I did. He said, Pastor, while I may not agree with everything you told my daughter, he said, I want you to know that I respect a pastor who is willing to stand on conviction. 
I jumped from my feet. I, I wanted just to scream and shout, you know, honey, stop packing. Uh, I was reminded that day of how important it is to stand on conviction. And I was thankful that God rewarded that with a positive phone call. But let me ask you the question that I had to ask myself. What if that conversation did not lead to success, but instead led to suffering? What if that conversation went an entirely different direction? Let me ask you this question. If you say, I don't fear anyone or anything like I fear God, and I'm willing to give my life for that, let me ask you this. What if your plans for God are not God's plans for you? What if, what if your ministry doesn't follow the course and the trajectory that God has for you? What if the road that you travel down is not a road of ministry success? There's no human success in it. And every decision and every stand and every twist and every turn doesn't lead to success. It leads to suffering. Are you still willing to say that I will fear God more than I fear anyone or anything? Jesus said to his disciples, yes, this is serious. And you must understand who you fear and it's the question of loyalty but there's another statement that Jesus makes a second statement that leads to a second question and we noted that in verse 6 and 7 and here's the question do you know that Jesus loves you intimately Look what Jesus says in verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten by God. An, an insignificant amount of money for a, an insignificant bird. He says not one of them is forgotten by God. Why, even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not. Now notice again, fear not. Stop worrying. Stop being filled with anxiety. Understand this. You are of more value than many sparrows. Now listen. Either this is true or this is not. Either God loves you and cares for you. We're not talking about others right now. I'm talking about you. Those in this room are who are his disciples whom he has called. Either he loves you or he doesn't. Either he is interested in you intimately or he is not. Either he knows what you're dealing with or he does not. If it's true, it ought to change the way we do our ministry. It ought to change the way we live our lives. You know, a lot of us get into a place in ministry where we think that maybe God has forgotten about us. We see others on their road to success. We look at our ministry as a road to suffering and a road to difficulty. Getting thrown out of homes, getting fired from jobs, we're facing difficulties at every turn. There is tremendous comfort and there is tremendous peace in knowing that God knows every single detail about you and he loves you intimately and he's interested in you. What better words of comfort could Jesus offer to his disciples? You are of tremendous value to God and he knows everything about you. He knows when you're studying, spending late hours and you're still struggling. He knows when you're thinking about dropping out of seminary and you're hurting and you're wondering if it's worth it. He knows when you are making a financial sacrifice 
for the cause of his kingdom. And when all of your friends go to the pizza buffet and you eat ramen noodles because you can't afford to, he knows that. He knows that you're trying to have children and you want to have a family and you're unable to have a family and you're seeing those around you who are having families and you're brokenhearted. He knows that and he loves you intimately about that. He looks at you when nobody else is looking. He knows when you're holding back from him and he knows when you're giving away for him. He knows all that about your life. A couple of weeks ago, as you know, I live in Daytona Beach. I live in NASCAR City. And I was invited to, there's an amen over here, and I was invited, I look NASCAR, don't I? And I was invited to go and to pray at the truck race they have during speed weeks. And it's not that impressive. They give you 25 seconds. 25 seconds. Can you imagine how, I can't hardly say dear God in 25 seconds. And so I fashion a prayer that gets the gospel prayed in 25 seconds. And then I pray in Jesus' name. We do that, by the way, still in NASCAR. And I was standing by the platform of the stage looking out at the stands. The gentleman from NASCAR who was showing me around, taking care of me that night said to me, just off the cuff, do you ever look at a crowd like this and wonder what is going on in people's lives? What a profound question. And to be honest, yes, there are times that I do, but most of the time, I think we would all admit that we don't look at the crowds and wonder what's going on with them. We look at the crowds as a nuisance. That crowd that I was staring at was the very crowd that kept me from getting to my parking place to get to where I needed to be. That, that crowd is, is those people in line in front of me at Walmart when I need to check out. Uh, that, that crowd is, is an annoying nuisance when I'm at the theme park and I want to get on the ride and have fun. Let me tell you something. I may never look at a crowd or may not always look at a crowd and wonder what is going on with them, but I assure you of one thing, Jesus always does. The multitudes came to him on that green hillside. They were without food. The disciples said, send them away. Jesus looked at them and his heart broke for them because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He always looked at individuals he always saw people, and he always wanted people to know that he was interested in them, in their hurts, in their life, in their successes, in their victories. And the disciples began to wonder, I, you have to imagine, they were wondering, what does this mean for us? And Jesus said, God loves you intimately. You're not in this mission alone. Oh, we see this throughout the Bible, don't we? Moses said, Lord, if you're going to lead me to lead these people, then I have to be able to know that you're with me and that you love me. Can you show me your presence? And God revealed his glory. Elijah was going to take on the false prophets, and yet he was without food. And what did God do? God sent a widow with a little bit of meal and oil to take care of him as a reminder that I understand you. Naaman He's a Syrian commander with leprosy, and God sends him a servant girl with great faith in the God of Israel. God knows intimately what goes on in your life, and I want you to hear this. You will never take risks 
for his kingdom if you are unsure of that. If you think you're on your own and that God doesn't know what's going on and he's not involved in your life, you will not take the risks that God requires you to take for his kingdom. And he wanted his disciples to understand that. So number one, do you fear God more than anything? Fear not, he said, him who can kill the body and that's all they can do. You fear him who can cast into hell. Question number two, do you know that God loves you intimately and he is intimately concerned about you and your life? You are of more value than a few sparrows and those sparrows are of tremendous value to him. But then there's a third statement that begins in verse eight, goes through verse 12 that leads to a third question. And here's the question. Do you trust God to provide at the hour of your greatest need? Look what Jesus says in verse 8. He says, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of heaven. He's, again, comparing a true disciple with the hypocrisy that he has just exposed of the Pharisees and the lawyers and the religious elite. He said, God knows who you are. If you deny me before men, you'll be denied before the Father. If you speak a word against the Son of Man, you'll be forgiven. But if you blaspheme against him, you will not be. And then he says in verse 11, and they will bring you before synagogues and the rulers and authorities. And when they do, what does he say? Look at it right there. Do not be anxious. Do not be afraid for what you will say in that hour. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. How many of you thought the very same thing that I thought when we watched with horror the 21 Coptic Christians from Egypt who were murdered by the Islamic State? What was the one thing beyond the horror of what we witnessed that went through your mind. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ and you understand how serious ministry is, the one thing that probably went through your mind is, what if that were I? What if I was one of them? What would I do? How would I respond? Is my loyalty is my intimacy with God such that I would be able to remain faithful? Jesus answers that for us. He says, if you're a disciple, a real, true disciple, you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to have anxiety about what you'll say, what you'll do. For you in that hour will be given grace by the Spirit of God to respond. God will never ask you to do anything that he will not give you the resources to do or the grace to do it, even if you have to give your life. Fear not, my friends. Fear not, little flock. Do not fear. Do not worry. Can you imagine what would happen in all of our lives, if we would adopt that philosophy in ministry, I don't fear anyone like I fear God. I don't deny or forget the intimacy with which God loves me and cares for me. 
And I do not worry about having the resources to do what he asks me to do, for in my hour of need, he will always provide those resources for me. And he'll go on in the second half of this section, and he'll explain that to the disciples about money and things and stuff. I was in Nairobi just preaching a conference with the Maasai down south of Nairobi. I was traveling through Nairobi with my friend from Kenya, just the two of us. I was in the front seat of his car, and we were driving through one of the slums. He decided to take a shortcut. In the future, I will remind him not to take the shortcut that he took that night. We found ourselves in a, in a press of people beating on the car, obviously knowing that I was very different than they were. And my friend said, we need to pray that we will get out of this. And I thought, you need to pray that I'll get out of this and then pray that I don't kill you when we get out of this. Because honestly, I thought to myself, this is not how I wrote the script of my martyrdom. Getting beaten by an angry crowd. That, that's not how I would have laid it out. That's not how I envisioned God's plan for me. It, it should be much better than that experience. Now, obviously, we got out of it. I want you to turn with me just for a moment. And I want you to look at verse 32. I want you to see how Jesus puts an exclamation point on this entire narrative. Verse 32 through verse 34, listen to what Jesus said. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. And we could say, and no one can kill and take away. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know what Jesus is saying and what he said to me in the car that night? Is my kingdom enough? You're getting a kingdom that moth can't destroy, no thief can steal, no human being can kill and take away. You're getting a kingdom. Is that sufficient? Mark, do you need me to rewrite the script for your life so that you can get the stuff that you want to get and then tack the kingdom on at the end? Or is it enough for you to take the kingdom that I'm going to give you? Is that enough? That's the question. Are we content with the kingdom we're going to receive? You remember the day in the scripture when Jesus fed the multitude? Maybe 25,000 people were gathered that day. After the multitude was fed and the disciples were fed, all four gospel writers record this narrative for us. It says that Jesus made the disciples go across the lake, made them leave. Now I will tell you, if I were writing that script, I would write the script where I could hang out for a while and bask in the glory of the greatest miracle 
apart from the resurrection that Jesus did for multitudes of people. The greatest miracle on any one scale, 20,000 plus people ate. Wouldn't it be cool to kind of hang out there and stay in chapel and just chill with all our friends and drink coffee and just enjoy the Lord's presence? But the scripture says that Jesus made them. Mark writes, Jesus made them in Mark chapter 6. He made them go across the lake. And then the scripture tells us that the winds begin to prevail against them and they're blown out into the middle of the Sea of Galilee and they're rowing and straining at the oars trying to get back to land for hour upon hour upon hour, maybe six hours. Now at this point, they're not expecting to see the Lord, right? They're just struggling to get back to land. And of course, Jesus shows up. It teaches them a lesson that they were unable to learn because of the multiplication of the loaves and fish because their hearts were hard. Peter makes a confession of the Lord on the lake that day, and the disciples do. When they see Jesus, they say, truly, you are the Son of God. They learned a lesson in the middle of a storm that he made them get into that they couldn't learn in the glory of the feeding of the 5,000. He had to teach them in a different way about who he was and who he is. And so when they make it back to land, the multitude that was fed finds Jesus again. Now you see, the multitude is thinking, you provided this meal for dinner. We're ready for what? Breakfast. And John records an extended discussion that Jesus has with them. He said, I know why the larger multitude has come back to see me. Because you were fed and you want to be fed again. You're looking at me for what I can give you and for what I can do for you. And he says to them in John 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. And then down in verse 53 in John 6, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of God and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Verse 60, when many of the disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard saying for who can understand it. And then in verse 66, it says, after this, many disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Because their expectations for God did not meet what God had intended for them. And they turned and walked away. Are you willing to lay down your life? If you are, who do you fear? Do you understand God is intimately involved and cares about your life? And lastly, in the hour of your greatest need, even if it means giving your life, he will provide the grace you need to be faithful to him. The question is, are you the real thing? Are you a cheap substitute? And there's a big difference. Would you bow with me? Oh, Father, I thank you today for the privilege to stand before such an amazing group of men and women, professors and students and guests. And I suppose, Lord, that we all understand this because we're here We've given our lives to ministry. We know it's serious. Ministry is serious. 
But Father, we're going to be honest with you and we're going to tell you that there are times that there is anxiety and fear in our lives as to what it will mean if we truly lay down our life for you. And Father, we all have a script and that script is written a certain way. And so often as you have demonstrated to us, you tear that script up and you do it your way. And so the question, Lord, we have is, is receiving a kingdom enough? Because if it is, we won't fear. And if it is, we won't be anxious. And if it is, we'll lay down our lives. And we'll give away our stuff. And we'll follow you. And Father, I pray right now for that, that man or woman in this place, that student, that faculty member, that guest. And today, Lord, you're, you're, you're doing something in their life. And while they may want to stay here and bask in the glory of God's providence and blessing, you're calling them to some tough places. And the reason there's so many tough places in the world because all the, the easy places have been taken. And so, Lord, there's a lot of hard places to go. May our fear of you and our trust in your watch care over our lives and our assurance that you'll provide for us lead us from this moment to say to you, you have all of me there is. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost dying world. Your gifts will help to train more and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.